title of our series is The Christian Life in a Culture of Religious Pluralism. And uh, today I'd like to focus our thoughts on verses 24 to 29 in a message called The Christian Proclamation. As we think of the word proclamation, it brings up ideas and thoughts about outreach and evangelism. Back in 1974, uh, Billy Graham and uh, John Stott and uh, Francis Schaeffer and uh, a couple of other scholars um, that were uh, Christian leaders called together a convocation on world evangelism in Lausanne, Switzerland. And they gathered itinerant evangelists and pastors from all around the world in Lausanne. And in that convocation, they came up with what's called the Lausanne Covenant. And this covenant is a standard of what it means to divine divine missions. That covenant was renewed back in the early 2000s, or the early 1990s, and then again in the early 2000s. But the essence of the Lausanne Covenant remains the standard for defining what is missions that we've been talking about this morning and what is evangelism. So I'd like to share with you what the Lausanne Covenant, how they define evangelism. And this is what they say. To evangelize is to spread the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And that as reigning Lord, he now offers the forgiveness of sins and the liberating gift of the Holy Spirit to all who repent and believe. What a wonderful, succinct definition of evangelism. But the Lausanne Covenant doesn't just stop with the the definition of evangelism. They also express to us the process of evangelism. And that's in their second paragraph. And it's this. Our Christian presence in this world is indispensable to evangelism. Think about the word presence. And so is that kind of dialogue whose purpose is to listen sensitively in order to understand. But evangelism itself is the proclamation of the historical, biblical Christ as Savior and Lord with a view to persuading people to come to him personally and to be reconciled to God, which was what we talked about last week, the ministry of reconciliation. In this definition that remains the standard definition of the process of missions and evangelism today, we have these three words. The first one is presence. That refers to displaying the love of God to those around us, like providing books for a school or putting on a medical clinic for those who are in need. Or in our own community, it could be serving in our food pantry or serving in our community meals in Eagle River. Uh, It could mean all church uh, community service projects, individually acts of kindness that we show to those around us. That's called a presence in our uh, environment. Then that word dialogue as, is uh, important as opposed to lecturing, 
or looking down upon or trying to judge or manipulate anybody with things that we might do as a Christian. Because dialogue is very, very important in sharing our faith. The number one pushback that Christians often get from our culture, and I remember one day I was at an evangelism workshop and my assignment was to go into a local tavern and try to interview somebody and what they thought of the church. And I didn't even get the words out of my mouth. And this guy turned to me and he says, I am offended that you've come in here and you're going to cram your religion down my throat. That's the perception that our culture often has, and in this this culture today, of people who try to share their faith. And the reason is, is because we have not taken the time to dialogue, to develop a relationship, to listen and to hear what the needs are that people have. And so dialogue is a very important part of the evangelistic process. But the bottom line of evangelism is this third word highlighted here, and that's proclamation. There's this idea floating around in Christian circles that our lifestyle, living a Christian life, modeling behavior consistent with the gospel is evangelism. According to this theory, we might say that we preach the gospel every day and, if necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that? Preach the gospel every day and, if necessary, use words. Someone else has said, we believe um, we believers may be the only gospel people will ever see or hear. And I'd like to respectfully suggest to you that both of these ideas are seriously flawed and do not conform with the true teaching of the New Testament. Because how is it that a person comes to faith in Christ? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. There must be proclamation. And then Peter says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through what? The living and abiding word of God. And so while we should endeavor to be the best example of the follower of Christ, with sacrificial presence, with genuine relationship building through dialogue. In our presence, there must, we must at least raise the flag that we're doing this ministry because of Jesus. And in our dialogue, it's important for us to include the message of what Jesus said. I want to know what you think. What are you thinking about? What are your thoughts? But please, will you listen to what Jesus might say about that. Because unless there's proclamation, no one can come to faith in Jesus Christ. While performing acts of kindness and benevolence, as well as developing relationships, are important, there must be proclamation of the word. We will see this very clearly as we read our verses for today in Colossians chapter 1. So let's read together Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 24. 
I'm not going to project it because I really like us to have our Bibles open and on our laps. If you didn't bring one, there's one on the chair right in front of you. And uh, I encourage you to open it up and keep it open as I'm going to be going through verse by verse through these verses in this paragraph from Colossians chapter 1. So Colossians 1 verse 24, look for Paul talking about proclamation in these verses. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become a servant by the commission of God gave me to present to you the word of God in all of its fullness. The mystery that has been held is kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Look at verse 25. Paul wants to present the word of God. Verse 28. We proclaim to you the word of God. Look up one verse earlier in verse 23, which we talked about last week. Paul says, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to you. Proclamation is the essence of the Christian ministry. There is a specific apostolic commission that Paul is feeling. Other places in the New Testament, Paul says, I'm constrained to teach. That word means that he feels he's sandwiched. And when, when the, the pressures from bottom and above put on it, he's, he's squished. And when he's squished, what oozes out? The gospel oozes out. He says, that's my life. He says, I can't help it. Everywhere I go, I, I proclaim the message of the gospel. And then he reminds us what that message is in Second. Corinthians chapter 5. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So not only is Paul squeezed and ease out, ooze out the gospel, we too are to be squeezed and ooze out the message of the gospel. As I present this though, it's easy for us to feel pressured. You know, I hope you're not feeling that today, but I understand if you do. Because vocalizing and sharing the gospel message is something that many of us find difficult to do. We're uncomfortable doing it. So I would like to present this thesis to you. Proclamation of the Word of God evangelism, sharing the gospel, however we view it, can be the normal lifestyle of a follower of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying should be, even though probably it should, but don't think of it that way because that's pressure. You know, that's, 
that's the preacher putting pressure on people. You've got to go out and, and preach on the street corners. If that's your gift, great. Um, if it's not, don't feel the pressure. But I'd like to suggest to you that these verses kind of ooze excitement from the Apostle Paul. Where he says, man, I just love doing this. It's, it's my lifestyle. And, and he says in these verses things that encourage us. And if we can maybe catch the enthusiasm that the Apostle Paul has, it's possible for us to have sharing our faith be natural and normal and part of our lifestyle. So I'd like to suggest that we look at four truths in these verses. And these four truths, um, if we can really grasp them, might help us to maybe make sharing the gospel with those around us a lot more part of our lifestyle, more of a I can't wait to, I want to, rather than I have to. So let's look real quickly at these four principles. One, verse 24. There is joy in proclamation of the word, even if we suffer for doing it. Now I understand that the thing that causes people most hesitation in sharing the gospel is because they know that there might be pushback. Uh, Someone might say to you what this guy said to me. How dare you? Well, there might be some pushback. But you know what Paul says in verse 24? Verse 24, he says, "I, I rejoice in sharing the gospel. And there's two reasons why he rejoices. One, there is joy and suffering in fellowship with Jesus. You see, when we suffer, when there's pushback on us, we're entering into the same experience that Jesus had. And that's what Paul means when he says, I am filling up what is lacking in the ministry of Christ. There's nothing lacking in the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, there was nothing more to do. It was done, finished. So we would never, we would never continue to fill up what was lacking in the cross what we're doing is we're entering into the suffering of Jesus, which will never end. Remember when Paul came to faith in Christ and Jesus appeared to him and Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, when, when Christians suffer, Jesus suffers. And so when we share our faith and someone pushes back, Jesus feels that with us. And if we can really get the idea that, whoa, I'm, I'm getting pushback from my family or from my coworkers when I share my faith, we think, well, Jesus is suffering along with me. And that, that kind of something we can rejoice in with him. When there's pushback, we are entering into the sufferings of Jesus. But secondly, notice that there is also joy in suffering on behalf of future leaders. Paul says he does it. On our behalf. He does it. He says, I'm, I'm doing it for you. Well, as, as he shares his faith and his ministry, he is indeed accomplishing something for us. Think of the people who planted our church. Now, when they planted our church, it was probably a difficult thing to do. Maybe some, I know some of you were there. 
there's probably questions from our community. Who are the, what's evangelical free? You know, and it just maybe was uncomfortable. But look at us now. You see, their efforts made it possible for us to have a church. And so if we can think like Paul did, you know, I'm going to share the gospel, I'm going to proclaim the gospel truth, but you know, I'm doing it because in the future, someone's going to benefit from my ministry. And so if we can think of it that way, we can think, you know, there's actually joy in sharing and proclaiming the gospel. If we can grab a hold of that thought, it might be easier for us to be willing to take the risk. Second, verses 25 to 27. It's a privilege to proclaim the word of God. It's a privilege um, to proclaim the word of God. Um, You can see Paul's excitement in these verses. Um, You ever tried to keep a secret? I mean, it's hard to keep a secret, isn't it? Because you want to tell someone the secret. And then when it's time to tell the secret, you're all excited. Oh, I get to, I get to tell the secret. See? Uh, this week we had the addition of a birth in our church. Dave, do you want to tell a secret today? No? no? <laughs> but you can tell us. Born to Tyler and Rachel. God bless you. That's great. Yay. Isn't that fun to tell a secret? See, that's what, that's what Paul is saying to us here. He says, I want to tell the mystery. Paul calls it a mystery. Well, what is the mystery that Paul is saying that he's telling people when he talks about Jesus? Well, he tells us in verse 27, the glorious riches of the gospel. The glorious riches of the gospel. We can tell those around us that, you know what? Jesus can give you his glorious riches. Now, that's not health and wealth doctrine. Jesus might heal you, and he does provide our needs. But the glorious riches of the gospel is much deeper than that. It's his goodness. It's his glory. It's his generosity that he's given to us in Christ. It's the freedom that we know and the forgiveness of sins. It's, it's God's grace in our lives. It's the promise of an inheritance that is being kept for us in heaven. It is the full measure of understanding of what it means to walk with God. In fact, it's Christ himself. And that really is the second mystery. Look at verse 27. Christ in you. That was unheard of in the Old Testament, Old Covenant. God in Christ actually lives in you. Buddhism has nothing like that. Buddha doesn't live in us. Muhammad doesn't live in us. In fact, Even Allah, the the Muslim God, does not live in us. None of the Hindu gods live in us. This is totally unique to Christianity. It's like God 
came down and inhabited the tabernacle, just like God came down and inhabited the temple. You know, you and I, as we place our faith and trust, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we place our faith and trust in him, you know what he does? He comes down and inhabits us. Christ in you. What, a, what an incredible privilege to tell people that mystery. That's the glory of the resurrection life. Third, verse 28. Proclaiming the word of God promotes spiritual maturity. Now, I'm not going to explain this one because I don't have time to this morning. I want to make this our discussion for cross-training. So if, if you're able to stay for us in cross-training, I want to talk to you about what it means to proclaim the gospel to yourself. Think about the messages that you hear all day. You hear a message from TV, billboards, uh, messages from your coworkers. You know who talks to you more than all of them together? You do. And so if we can learn to talk to ourselves the gospel, it creates spiritual maturity in us. We'll talk about that in cross-training. That leads me to the final point, verses 28 and 29. We experience God's power when we proclaim the word of God. Paul says, To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy so powerfully works that so powerfully works in me. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. God's power comes through the proclamation of the scriptures, of the gospel. To feel and understand and experience God's power is amazing. And to share the gospel with someone and watch God's power do its work in their lives. Isn't that something that that you long for, to see something meaningful happen because of what you do for Jesus. And when we proclaim the gospel message, we see his power working within us. We understand the spiritual maturity that grows within us in our lives, and then we grasp the privilege we have. And that all brings us great joy as we partner with Jesus in the ministry of reconciliation. And you see, when we celebrate communion, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 what the Apostle Paul says as a summary statement, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do we do? We proclaim. What is it that we proclaim? In another verse, Paul says, God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What does that mean? That means that Jesus was sinless. And Isaiah the prophet tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, that's what we celebrate in communion. 
in the death of Christ, God has taken our sins and laid them on his body. And when he went to the cross, he gave his body as a sacrifice for our sins. Now the Bible says in that verse that Jesus knew no sin, but yet he became sin. In other words, God treated him as though he were. He imputed our sins on Jesus so that he could then, the second part of the verse, impute his righteousness back to us when he says that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's the new covenant that Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper. This is my blood, which is the new covenant in my blood. God gives us not only forgiveness of sins, but he counts us righteous. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim, yes, I receive the gift of Jesus. So as we distribute the elements this morning, and if you feel led to take them, what you're doing is you are declaring, yes, I am placing my faith in Jesus and I'm, and I'm recognizing the gospel that in his body, my sins were paid for. I'm recognizing that in this cup, in his blood, I am counted as righteous in his sight. And so if that's you, if that's your testimony, freely enter into this time of worship and proclamation of the gospel as applied to you. We will be distributing the elements in one passing of the of the tray, which has two cups stacked on top of one another. The bread is in the bottom one and the juice is in the top.